Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast championing women in history, putting them back into the history books. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we will be talking about Eleanor Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester, the medieval noblewoman accused of witchcraft and treason in the 1400s. A case that set a dangerous precedent that ultimately led to the downfall of Anne Boleyn. City today, we have Dr. Ewan Roger, a principal records specialist in the medieval team at the National Archives, specialising in the records of late medieval and early Tudor English government, the central law courts, and the secular clergy, with a particular interest in aspects of social, medical, political, and material history. Recently, Ewan was head creator on the Treason People Power and Plot exhibition, currently showing at the National Archives, and co authored the accompanying book, A History of Treason. Welcome to the studio. And it is actually the studio, which makes it a treat for us uh, in person, the fascinating, wonderful Ewan Rogers. Hi, great to be here. Thank you for being here. And you're here to talk about Eleanor Cobham. Yes. Duchess of Gloucester. And someone who I heard about when I read the book Royal Witches by Gemma Holman. And yeah, it fascinated me for a few reasons. One, I'd never really heard of her name before. And two, I had a conversation with a friend who's also into history. And she'd said that she'd heard a, a woman who had been very lonely and been locked up in Beaumaris Castle and she was like oh I wonder if that's the same person and we kind of put two and two together and thought this is really sad and we should know about her and what happened so I'm going to ask you if it's okay to give us an outline of who Eleanor Cobham was and why she is part of the exhibition that you've curated at the National Archives, which is running right now. Of course, yeah. Eleanor Cobham, as you've already mentioned, was the Duchess of Gloucester in the early 15th century, the first half of the 15th century. And she is married to Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. She's his second wife and had formerly been his mistress until they get married after his first marriage had been annulled. And her story is absolutely fascinating. It's a story of treason, of magic, astrology, and astronomy, her husband Humphrey is essentially after 1435 he is the heir presumptive to the throne of England. We've got a young king on the throne, Henry VI, and if he dies childless, which he has no children at this point, then Humphrey will become the king of England as the oldest surviving male. And of course, that means that Eleanor will be the queen of England. Their marriage is absolutely fascinating. They are very much a humanist couple. They're interested in intellectual pursuits, in art, in music, in the finer things in life. And they can set up a court called La Plaisance at Greenwich, which is the kind of the hub where you want to be. And she is accused of using treasonous magic to predict when the king will die. And so at that point, she will become the Queen of England. Her story is very sad. It's very interesting in how it all works. And her story features at the National Archives in our exhibition, Treason, People, Power and Plot, because it's one of the most interesting stories of treasonous women, I would say, from the 15th century and how treason charges are used against women and how they struggle to press these charges and they have to find ways to bring her down essentially. So the general story is we're in 1441, this is the year, she's out dining with some companions in Cheapside in London and she finds that some of her household members have been arrested. The charges aren't quite clear at first but they've been arrested for treason and these 
accomplices. One of them is Roger Bolingbroke. He's the kind of the main person. Thomas Southall is the second, and a man called John Home. And they are accused of using figures to bring down the king's death, kind of creating magical figures, magical crowns, images of the king, but also using necromancy, magical arts, and astrology to predict the king's nativity, so to predict when he will die. And Eleanor panics initially and goes into sanctuary at Westminster. And then over the course of the next months, we see various investigations into what has happened, and they try and work out what they can put her and her associates on trial for. So arrest them, then think about what it is that they're arresting them for. Yeah, with Roger Bolingbroke, they actually don't arrest him straight away. They arrest Thomas Southall straight away. But Bolingbroke, they kind of put under observation to see if he implicates anyone else in in his crimes. Wow. Okay. You said that their relationship was interesting in that it was a love match. That, again, stands out in her story. And do you think that that start, the way that they came together, because she was his mistress and because she was of lower status than you would expect a wife of a duke to be, do you think that that was one of the issues that meant that she was a target in this way? Very much so. Um, I think there is contention around this match. There is feeling that it's not the done thing. There is a, a note of caution I would sound here is that a lot of Eleanor's story is kind of warped through 15th century perceptions of her, particularly after this, the trials have taken place and in the aftermath of all of this. So we do have to take contemporary perceptions with a slight pinch of salt. But I think we do definitely see her ambition shining through. There's one letter from the 1430s where someone is petitioning the Crown, essentially, for the redress of a complaint. And normally you would petition the Chancellor or you petition the Crown directly. And someone petitions Eleanor Cobham. I've got a quote here. So they address this petition to the right high and full mighty princess and full gracious lady Duchess of Gloucester. I think there's no contention that she is ambitious. She wants to be going places. She wants to develop this court around her. So I think that there's that element to it. And there's also a very clear interest in the occult, interest in astronomy, astrology, medicine. We can see from the library of Humphrey Duke of Gloucester that they have lots of books that are kind of interested in dabbling in these arts. So in a way, there is this contention. But at the same time, she has got a clear interest in these things and is exploring them. Yeah, let's come back to that. They were popular, weren't they? And they did have a lot of gatherings at La Plaisance. One of the things I heard in the book, and it always struck me, was when they did get accused and they were in prison, some of the locals did make a noise about it. They weren't happy, which is quite interesting because you wouldn't expect that a person in the street would do that, put themselves in danger by verbalising maybe how they were feeling. There is a moment where a, a woman shouts to Henry VI. Yeah. So you're stupid and the whole of England knows that you're stupid or you're a fool and the whole of England knows that you're a fool. Kind of, the translation slightly could be either. This is in the aftermath of the trial. The king's riding across Blackheath and he is literally accosted by this woman. Now, again, we have to be very careful with this. There, Some accounts state that she might have had mental health concerns and we, we simply don't know. But she's actually given a warning. Do you know who you're speaking to? And she says, yes. And I'm talking to that person. And it's very clear that she is supportive of Eleanor. She says, send Eleanor back to her husband. I guess we'll, we'll talk about why that's the case uh, shortly. But there is real commitment, real interest, real devotion from their wider court and their wider household. And we see later on attempts to break Eleanor out of prison at various points by members of this retinue. So that they clearly invoke very strong reactions, both for and against. That's probably why, again, 
it ruffled a lot of feathers because they were so popular. Popular, powerful. Getting back to the reasons behind it and then maybe the sources, the people that came for them. What's the relationship with Humphrey and what was happening with him? Maybe give us a bit of background of that. Yeah, so we're talking about a situation where we've got a very young king on the throne. So we have kind of regents in place or protectors to look after the kingdom. And there's a real power struggle that goes on in the 1420s, 30s around who's the top person in the council, who has the control, particularly who's influencing the ongoing war with the French. Does England fight the French? Do they make concessions? And there's a lot of back and forth. And Humphrey is very much at the heart of this, particularly from 1435, when his older brother dies and Humphrey takes over control and that protector role. And he's very much against peace with France. He thinks we should be aggressive against France. And that's a kind of unpopular in the, in the factionism, I guess we would say, around the king. So there is a significant question as to whether Humphrey's the one being targeted here. Certainly, he's going downhill at this point. He's losing support in the council in particular. And there's a question as to whether Eleanor is a, a useful target to try and bring Humphrey down and to try and taint his public reputation. Let's just talk about the sources a little bit. You mentioned a letter there or a petition. What are you looking at when you're inferring these scenes and and putting the pieces of the puzzle together? So we have a couple of different sources. The main focus for the charges, the treason charges that are being brought against Eleanor and her associates are the records of the King's Bench, the central law courts. And we have commissions to investigate what's been going on and to bring indictments or charges against these people. Now, it's interesting in that there's a real problem with Eleanor because no one knows how a noble woman should be put on trial. There's not really been a clear precedent for how this should be done. And so they take an approach which is to have two separate tribunals going on at the same time, a religious tribunal and a secular or the lay courts, their investigation. And at the National Archives, we hold the records of the secular investigation, not the religious investigation. So we're seeing essentially half of the story going on. Now, of course, alongside all of this, we've got chronicle accounts, which, again, they're really useful in providing some of the colour, but they can be quite troublesome in how they're depicting this. So one of the most interesting ways that the chronicle accounts depict Eleanor and her story is they have great storms going on in London, and that's Eleanor's magical witchcraft causing great storms and it's kind of the great downfalls of rain and thunder and lightning everywhere and we're seeing that kind of Hollywoodization, I guess of Eleanor's story and that happens at various times throughout those chronicle accounts but I think at the heart of it we have those the secular investigation is the real source for exactly what charges are being brought and how they're being brought and against whom. Mm. Okay. You mentioned precedent for female nobility being tried in this way for these accusations. I know that Jonah Navarre, who was related to her, has a case that set a precedent, but there are the women that were accused of witchcraft. That wasn't part that was new. So do you want to talk about maybe the relationship with Joan of Navarre? Yeah, sure. As you said, there is a precedent for what should be done for a treasonous woman. And that is that rather than being hanged or drawn and quartered, a woman would be burned to death instead as a traitor. But the problem is less around the execution. It's around the trial process. So for men, it's very clear how a noble man should be put on trial. It's defined in Magna Carta as being tried by a jury of his peers. That's very clear. With a woman, it's not clear whether that would be the same. There's been no precedent in that sense. Now, as you say, Joan of Navarre is a really interesting precedent as a 
noblewoman accused of treason by witchcraft. So Joan of Navarre is the second wife of Henry IV, so the stepmother to Henry V. And her accusations come after Henry IV's death, so during her stepson's reign in 1419. And what we have in her situation is her confessor, a man named John Randolph, accuses her of using treasonous magic to compass and imagine the death of Henry V. Now, this is at a time when there's a real concern about people using necromancy and magic against the king. Actually, shortly before she's accused, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I believe, sends out a letter to all the bishops of the country saying, please pray for the king against this, this necromancy that's being used against him. So there's a real fear that this is being dwelling and bubbling up in the country. And it's almost a, a kind of a frenzy that builds up and Joan is caught in the middle of this. But interestingly, she's never put on trial. She is imprisoned till 1422, so about three years in prison. She's treated exceptionally well when she's imprisoned. She's given gifts. She's very well looked after. And there's a sense, I think, that Henry V is potentially using this as a means of gaining money, accessing money for the war effort. Joan has quite a large dowry, which is confiscated while she's imprisoned. And it would have been quite useful for Henry in financing the war with France. Shortly before he dies, he actually releases Joan, so she's never put on trial, and she reclaims her dowry eventually and goes on to live a normal life. So they've kind of tested the waters, but they've fudged it essentially and just kept her in prison without charge and then let her go. So that's the kind of interesting link, I think, between Joan and Eleanor, is that with Eleanor, they kind of want to put her on trial more and they want to take that step, but they're not sure exactly how to do it. And they have to, again fudge the issue. And actually when Joan of Navarre gets pardoned, it's when Henry V is dying yes, yeah. and it feels like he feels guilty and he needs to get that off his chest and actually the document you talked about that pardons her he doesn't mention what the accusations are. Yeah. It's like, you know, those things that we accused of, are, you, you all know. Yeah, so she's accused of using witchcraft in a treasonous way but ah. because she's never put on trial, there's never that actual, this is treasonous. So it's it's treason, but without a trial, it's not a formal charge, right. I would say. So I think it is a concern about magic and necromancy, but magic and necromancy being used in a bad way. So magic at this time is kind of allowed to pass formally. It's not a good thing, but it's overlooked in a lot of cases. You have records from the church courts in London, for example, where people are getting very small fines for summoning spirits. And it's overlooked, except when you have these wider spread fears around the country and then the authorities feel they have to act. And this is at a time when we're seeing a lot of turmoil and unrest in religious practice in England. So we have the rise of the Lollards in the kind of early 15th century. And I think it is all linked, but the authorities are trying to pin down exactly what it is they want to consider as treasonous and how they prosecute it, whether it's religious or secular. I think Gemma's argument in the book is that if they had taken her to trial, they would have had to have paid a compensation if she was then let off. Yeah. And it's all down to money in the end, isn't it? With a lot of treason trials as well, we've looked at a whole range from the 14th century through to the modern day in our exhibition. And you see a real concern with making sure that if you charge someone with treason, whether it's magical or otherwise, you want to make it stick you have to get that trial to work otherwise it degrades powerful tool it is if you can exonerate someone it becomes a less like impressive tool essentially 
Interesting. You talked about the unrest at the time. There usually is correlation between what's going on culturally, if there's a resurgence of magic and astronomy and all those things that people use. Talk a bit about maybe the day-to-day use of magic, because obviously these are elite people. These are very rich people. Would people have used it in everyday lives? We have less evidence for the kind of everyday use of magic. A lot of what we have is where you have books, for example, surviving, and you can trace those, and those obviously tend to be nobles that their collections have survived. In other instances, we see this when it comes to the authorities' attention, essentially. Particularly when you have a young king in Henry VI, there are lots of treasonous, magical accusations coming to the fore. And a lot of them, it's frustration with the war in France. And it's people saying the wrong things in pubs, and then being accused of using magic or treasonous words against the king. And you have lots of these plots. So there's one, for example, where you have a mole catcher from Kent Um, a man named Robert Goodgroom. And he is accused of using necromancy and magic to make a poison against the king. And the most powerful poison in the world is described as being. So that's kind of the dangerous use of magic that we see coming to the fore. And I think we do have to take some of that, again, with a small pinch of salt, because when it comes out in the records, it's often what are called approvers' appeals. So this is someone essentially grasping up a bunch of other people in order to get themselves off of a crime, often quite a petty crime. In Goodgroom's example, he's found robbing churches and he spins this whole elaborate tale of magic and necromancy and poison and treason and they investigate it and none of it's found to be true at all. So we do have to take those with a slight pinch of salt. But there's also far more daily use and more normalised use of what we might term magic. We have what's called thief magic, which is magic being used to try and find goods that have been stolen or goods that have been lost. And again, that's kind of deemed to be an okay magical act, and it's very much overlooked. But then we also have, I would say, more medical, social uses of magic. We have fertility potions, we have love magic, we have fertility magic. And all of this is what we might today think of as I guess, a more medical use. It's a wariness of what this knowledge is, where it's coming from, how it's being used. And again, it's often left to fly under the radar slightly because it's not deemed to be too dangerous. But in cases like Eleanor Cobham's, when it comes to the fore in a much more prominent way, it's dumped down on quite quickly. I was going to mention medicine and the fact that doctors had to know about astronomy and all these other things because they thought it was all mixed up in the same thing. Yeah, horoscopes are a big thing in the 15th century in particular. And what's quite interesting about Eleanor Cobham's case is that actually it's not the fact that they've cast a horoscope for the king, her associates. It's not that act itself is not the problem. It's that they've done this without permission, possibly of melancholy. And that's a treasonous act. That's a dangerous act. Doing it without permission and then passing on that information. And actually the king gets his astrologers to cast his own horoscope after this terrible one has been found to reassure him that he's not going to die next year after all. So she's got these experts. Who are they in her world that she's going to talk to and discuss these things with? They're all churchmen who are around her circle. Thomas Southall is her physician and Roger Bolingbroke, who's an Oxford educated doctor, He's very well thought of, and he's part of her kind of religious household. And they are in the secular indictments that we have against them. And I should say, Eleanor is never actually put on trial as a main party in these indictments. She's an accessory only because, as I say, they don't know how to put a noble woman on trial. And what they're accused of doing is creating figures of the king, but also summoning demons and malign spirits of the ground and of the air who are then put to work 
to work out this horoscope. Then, as I say, they go and pass on this information. A horoscope is a fairly normalised astrological calculation at this time, but it's creating it in a slightly dodgy way in the first place, and then disseminating that information is the real danger. And it seemingly is deemed to be quite dangerous. So Bolingbroke's the main party, but Savile and a man called John Home are there essentially chanting protective masses in the background to keep them safe from these spirits. It describes a circle on the ground in which Bolingbroke stands, and he's protected within that circle by the masses that they're singing. So it's elements of religion, but also astrology all being drawn together in their actions. Another thing we should probably mention is the fact that Eleanor actually had a really good relationship, so it seems, with Henry VI as well. So that in some ways may have kept her a little bit at arm's length to all of the accusations. Do you think, is that there in the evidence? It's really hard to tease out of the evidence because I say Eleanor is only ever named as encouraging the men in doing these actions. She promises them great gifts and promotions if they'll do this. But I think we definitely can see both Eleanor and Humphrey as being quite close to the king. And of course, they've got very similar interests. At this time, Henry VI is founding Eton College and various other similar educational foundations. And that's very much in line with the humanist thinking at La Plaisance. It's all similar. But I think Henry VI is someone who is very much surrounded by a council, particularly at this point. He's very young and he's not quite as powerful, potentially, as other kings might have been. We should probably talk about where the Witch of I, Marjorie Jordamain, comes in, because we've mentioned these gentlemen academics that scholars are around Eleanor but what about Marjorie Jordamain who I find fascinating so please tell me everything you know about her. Marjorie Jordamain is absolutely fascinating and she is essentially the person that brings down Eleanor ultimately because she's known as the witch next eye and she clearly is a go-to person for certain members of the court particularly when it comes to fertility magic or love magic and it's at the point when she is brought before the religious tribunal and gives evidence against Eleanor that she really starts to find herself in trouble. So she's in the religious tribunal. We have a series of accusations brought against her and she kind of admits to some of them. And the ones she admits to are that she had gone to Marjorie and had sought medicines and and magic to conceive a child. And she can't really deny that. Seems to be the case. It seems to be accurate. And that's the really difficult point. And Marjorie at this point has been active for about 10 years at least. We know that in the 1430s, she'd been arrested and put into custody at Windsor Castle. And it is released a few years later, basically on the obligation that she won't do it again. She abjures her heresies and is allowed to go free. But she has to say, I will not do this kind of magic again. And we get a lot of poems coming out after the case about the main protagonists. And they're what are called mirrors for magistrates models. They're kind of a moralising tale. They discuss Eleanor very much. So they're stories about being on fate's wheel and having highs and having lows. They are hugely misogynistic, particularly when it comes to Eleanor. But there is a really interesting quote here that I've got from one of them, which talks about the, the witch of I, Marjorie Jordan. So it says, there was a bell dam called the Witch of I, old mother Madge, her neighbours did her name, which wrought wonders in countries by his say, both fiends and fairies in her charming would obey, and dead corpses from graves she could upheave, such an enchantress as that time had no peer. So we're getting a sense of how she's perceived in England in this kind of, in these stories, but she clearly has these close connections with people like Eleanor, and it's that that finally brings kind of case crashing down. So we should say I was an area next to Westminster. Yeah, so she would have been right on the doorstep of the court at Westminster, and the fact she's arrested in Windsor makes me think that she's in the kind of vicinity into the court at various points. She's well connected. I always think when these things come up, you kind of think, she was arrested already. She had to promise that she wasn't going to do it again. And you're like, 
why is she still in the middle of all this doing things that potentially leave her vulnerable to these kind of accusations and let's face it a horrible horrible death potentially why would she keep going back but a lot of that's to do with the fact that she was really good at what she did and actually it was well paid wasn't it yeah and prior to kind of Eleanor's case coming crashing down her and Humphrey were very well connected at court and Humphrey was riding high for a lot of period so Jordan would have been protected in that role as well at the same time it's as things start to come crashing down for everyone else she's kind of brought up with them comes down by association collateral damage do you think if it was her first time at court she might have got because that was often the case wasn't it that they'd get one chance to kind of not do it again yeah. but the second time it, they came down really hard on them yeah so that's why in Windsor she's released she pays a financial sum and is released but this second charge is what condemns her to being burnt unfortunately yeah and that was at Smithfields was yes, it yeah wow I want to do a whole episode just on Marjorie Georgemain and the ins and outs of that. But at least we get to talk about her a little bit here. The other thing that I read about was the lone woman at Eleanor's funeral. And I know this is really random, but I just thought that was a really interesting addition to put in that there was this woman who had no name and no one knows about that was at this funeral. And I was like, why would you add that? But obviously it's somewhere in the records and Gemma Holman thought it was worth making note of. But I was like, Someone who didn't want to be named, who just wanted to make sure that they were there. But again, I think it's testament to perhaps how popular Eleanor Cobham was. But it was a, this was after she'd been imprisoned. So how long was she in captivity? So her marriage to Humphrey is annulled on account of having allegedly used love potions to seduce him in the first place. That marriage is annulled and she's subject to, to life imprisonment. I think she dies in 1452, I want to say roughly. And she has been in, imprisoned the entire time. She goes to Leeds Castle. She's then, she's moved around various places. There are attempts to break her out. She also tries to escape on certain occasions or to resist being moved to new places. She feigns illness quite a lot. And actually, some of her keepers are told, if she says she's ill, don't believe her. She's just trying to escape or trying to not be put in a more secure, fortified castle. That happens at various points when she's being moved. So she is essentially a subject to life imprisonment, ends up on... Bo Maris. <laughs> it is Bo Maris, yeah. yeah. So she, yeah, she's subject to life imprisonment, is moved around these various places, and then sadly dies. I'm not sure whether we can fully say that there was a lone woman. She becomes a really popular figure in the literature, the contemporary literature in the 15th century. And again, they embellish. Allegedly, on the day she leaves London, there's yet another storm. And that's the kind of the fury of the spirits. We have to be a bit careful because we have these mirror for magistrates model. She's very polarising as a figure. And we kind of get all these little bits that kind of come into her, her story, which aren't necessarily always going to be that reliable. Going back to what they actually got her for, that moment where they couldn't get around the fact that she had visited Marjorie Jordamain and it was for a love potion. Eleanor does talk about that, right? She does admit to doing that. It's very frustrating in the records. She is accused of a certain number of charges and she admits to, I think, five or six of them. But it doesn't tell you which five or six she has admitted to in the sources because we don't have that religious tribunal the records of that we don't know exactly what she's admitting to but it does seem to be related to Marjorie Jordanain the fact they annul her marriage is very much indicative I think that it was these these charges and there does seem to be a discussion of what's treasonous about them is there anything treasonous about them and ultimately they, they slightly fudge it and they say do public penance we'll annul your marriage 
and life imprisonment. In the aftermath of her case, they do change the law and they bring in new legislation for how to put a noble woman on trial. And it's the same as for a man. So you are tried by a jury of your male peers. So there's a gender imbalance there, but they now finally grasp that nettle and bring in new legislation. So it's all inference then what you're saying is because you can't know for sure. What Gemma argues is it was because there were magic forces at work when Eleanor and Humphrey got together. The idea is that it wasn't a true love match. It was actually this love potion and magic that was bringing them together. And that ties up the idea that she was a woman of lower status with a lot of ambition. You know, the archetype female social climber. And it ties all of that into a boat. I completely agree with that. They essentially argue that the marriage was null and void to begin with because she threw a love potion as such should be annulled. Mm. And they didn't have children, so she did go to her. I want to talk a little bit about the penance and the walking through the streets of London because it's very Game of Thrones, that one. It feels like that's where R.R. Martin seems to have gotten that from because I know he took a lot from history. Tell us about what would have happened at that point. I think it is very much what the Game of Thrones depiction is based on. That, and also there's a slightly later one, Jane Shaw, the mistress of Edward IV. But I think they're essentially the two instances are put together into what we see in Game of Thrones. What this is, is she's made to abjure her heresies, so to abjure this, free herself of this this magical, heretical taint that was on her. And she's made to walk three penitent walks through the streets of London. So she's made to wear just a shift, so essentially a kind of night dress, barefoot and carrying a candle. The routes are specifically chosen to walk past markets on market days, so it's busy, it's going to be very, very public. The guards that are with her are told that people aren't allowed to molest her, but also shouldn't show her any dignity. So it's very much, uh, don't come attack her, but yeah, don't show her any dignity. It's it's very much meant to be penitent, shameful. And on each of these walks, I actually mapped them out when we were planning this exhibition. You can do the walks through the streets of London based on the, the same routes. They're all about 15 minutes long if you were to walk kind of normal pace, but obviously in a penitent fashion, that's not what you would do. And they all go from the river past busy market areas, so through Cheapside in London, for example, past Leadenhall Market, for example. And each of them ends in a church where she is to light the candle, offer the candle and and pray for her soul, essentially. And this is very much meant to be a very public display of shame. And it's reflected as well in some of these Mirror for Magistrates poems that come out afterwards. This is a very clear way of saying, if you're too ambitious, particularly if you're a woman, beyond fate's will, you will suffer the lows that come with that. And one of the most poignant lines, I think, in, in these stories are each verse ends all women should beware of me. And it's literally that bringing her down as publicly and as openly as possible. Tale of overambition. And presumably people weren't really allowed to engage, but they would have been shouting and throwing things. I mean, you were talking about busy streets, so there would have been probably the gamut of feeling amongst the crowd. I think there would have been, yeah, very strong feelings. Yeah, we don't know exactly, but we know that they are almost certainly shouting and potentially throwing things. Medieval Londoners love a show, so I I can imagine they were... Yeah, they were fully engaged in this. Wow. Okay. And subsequently, that's been painted, hasn't it? That moment where Eleanor's walking through the streets. You see, it captures the imagination. So you, you can see why it's then retold in these different ways. Getting on to really how she's remembered. I should mention Leeds Castle. Was that the first place they put her under house arrest? Not quite the first. Okay. It's that's the kind of the first secure place that she is taken to. 
which is where Joan of Navarre was. Yes. So that's the reason I know about Eleanor Commons, because I went to Leeds. And the only thing that was there for me to see about these stories that I knew were connected to it was uh, Gemma Holman's book. So I hope Joan of Navarre and Eleanor get some airtime and get some kind of recognition at Leeds Castle, because I think that's just one space where so many amazingly interesting things have happened with women. And obviously it's been owned by six women in their own right. So that in itself. Her legacy. So you said that it was in the ether and people talked about it. It had a polarising effect on people because obviously people weren't happy about the fact that this is how she'd been treated and Humphrey. And actually we should probably say what happened to him as well. But at that point where they'd been split up, what happened to Humphrey? Yeah, a few years later, he himself is brought in on treason charges. So it's very much this is his downfall. There's little doubt that Eleanor is a big step in trying to discredit him particularly in the council, to try and bring him down. So, yeah, it's not a particularly happy outcome for either of them. Yeah, divide and conquer, because they were a power couple, weren't they? Yeah, definitely, yeah. How would you say, I mean, we can talk about the the recent history just after it happened, but then how would you describe the way their story has been disseminated through time or depicted? So it's very much the kind of core celebre of the day. It's a big story, and throughout the 15th century, we see it being revisited in these kind of poems and in general kind of contemporary literature and views. I think then it almost gets forgotten about a little bit there's this brief victorian i would i guess i would say or romantic um revisualization of it but i think it's definitely a story that's kind of has gone out of our collective consciousness and it's, it's kind of almost been forgotten about and you see things like game of thrones kind of pulling out some of these same stories it's something that i think should be more known or should be better known should be remembered more more generally yeah, pre-Raphaelites loved the tragedy, didn't they? Yeah. Loved to paint tragedies. Jane Grey, all these tragic stories of women depicted in the Victorian times, but from a Gothic perspective, aren't they? Like you say, Hollywoodized, yeah. pre-Hollywood, but you know, that kind of thing. And I think actually, apart from that kind of brief comeback in public history, we're focused on the next woman who is kind of subject to a major treason trial, Anne Boleyn. And obviously, it's because of Eleanor's story and because of the way they have to fudge it and then bring in new legislation that actually, several years later, Anne Boleyn can be put on trial by a jury of her peers and can be tried for treason. Yeah, so sadly, her legacy was one that was of tragic proportions for other women. It's true, the whole Henry VIII episode, because you're talking about poison and you're talking about necromancy. I mean, Henry VIII was super paranoid about all of that, wasn't he? The poison thing really worried him. It's like you say, that whole episode, because it was so dramatic and so many women involved, that's kind of overshadowed this episode, hasn't it, the previous one? Yeah, I think the 15th century as a whole has been kind of swamped by what comes later in the 16th century. As you say, Henry VIII, very paranoid, lots of treason charges. The poisoning one is a particular. So we've got this in the exhibition. Henry VIII brings in new legislation to punish poisoners, and the punishment is to be boiled to death in Smithfield in a very visceral public fashion. We've had to put a whole section in the exhibition just on Henry VIII because there's so much that goes on. And I think, yeah, the 15th century, the Wars of the Roses, Henry VI reign can often be, be lost amongst that much more violent and over-the-top story. Mm, but they're all connected, as everything always is. Yeah. What can we see if we went to look at the Eleanor stuff, and, and what else is there? The exhibition takes as its starting point the 1352 Treason Act, which defines in law for the first time what treason is. Yeah, it's the first definition of it. And we kind of take that as our starting point and go through to the 20th century. And for Eleanor, we, we've got the, one of the indictments brought against. So there are several indictments because they essentially send investigations out to different areas to check up on what's happened to investigate. So we have the indictment that's brought against Bolingbroke, Southall and Home with Eleanor as an accessory, and that's out on display. But then we've also got stories from the attainder of Richard III, 
which is just a fascinating story. He's essentially convicted of treason without a trial after the fact when he's already dead. And Henry, Henry Tudor predates his reign to the day before the Battle of Bosworth to, to make those charges stick. We've got um, stories from Henry VIII. We've got the gunpowder plot. It's been an amazing exhibition to work on because it's just so many huge stories from English and British history in one space. It's, it's quite amazing. Right the way through to the execution of Lord Haw Haw in the Second World War and many, many stories in between. We'll be here for a whole extra episode if I went through all of them. I mean, I'm fine with that. <laughs> but it's, been, it's been just amazing, as you say, to trace these, these threads through. So we've got Eleanor Cobham and then obviously the legislation brought in after that brings Anne Boleyn down. But then we've also got stories from the 20th century of Constance Markovitch and how they are attempting to navigate her prosecution. The story of how women have been treated in treason legislation is one that has this thread right the way through. And it's just been fascinating to try and untangle that and tell that story. And what would you say are the stark differences, apart from the fact that obviously it didn't exist to begin with and then they had to create these new laws and ways of trying women, but what is the big stark difference between men being tried of treason and women being tried of treason? I think part of it is this uncertainty of what to do with female traitors. And with Ellen, they fudge it. With Anne Boleyn, it, it's brutal and visceral. With Constance Markovitch, again, that she's spared. And it says in the document, she's spared essentially only on account of her sex. I think there's this concern about how women are treated. And I think part of that is to do with the punishment of being burned being such a violent act. When that's actually abolished in the 18th century in 1790, there's an amazing story that I've been tracing recently. It's not in the exhibition, but it's kind of parallel to one of the events that we're going to be talking about, which is about executions and punishments. The last woman to be accused of treason before they bring in this act which abolishes burning as the punishment, her sentence is essentially commuted several times to make sure that they don't burn her. So she's the last person and they say, we'll do it next week, we'll do it next week, we'll do it next week, just to make sure that act has passed. So I think there is this real concern how to deal with female traitors, which I think is to do with the, the form of execution in part. And also, I think that's partly why Anne Boleyn didn't believe it was going to happen. Like, she didn't actually believe she would be executed until the very last moment. Yeah. Yeah, because it hadn't happened before to a queen in that way. Obviously, we're talking in a very gendered way about that same accusation for women. And it, it is connected to the fact that they weren't officially political figures and they weren't officially given roles at court but they did have power and they were able to wield that through what we call now soft power so you know connected to conversations that they would have had with their husband sons whoever so this is also one way that they could have been targeted via this because of the fact that you couldn't actually say well you've not done your job properly or that war didn't go very well so it is indicative of that yeah i think definitely it's um, it's that soft power you can't be checked for not doing your job i think that's definitely part of it but it's also there's this perception i think that if you're on the council and you don't know what's being said to the king you don't know who's got the king's ear then actually yes you, you can kind of make those accusations of magic stick a bit easier because it's, it's in the shadows it's behind the scenes and i think that's why we see magic being used against women in this way i think it's, it's obviously not always women involved but there is noble women in particular being around the king and having, particularly when the king is such a young monarch and is going to be talking to people, he's going to be having those female influences in his life. And that kind of soft power, it works both ways. It, it can be a useful way of keep getting the king's ear, but it can also be a way to draw target on your own back. 
So I look forward to that new exhibition as well then. Is that, or is that like an arm of what you're so doing? We're doing a series of Meet the Curator 10-minute tours where you'll get to see the exhibition but also investigate extra angles to those stories. And we haven't quite got dates for those yet, but they'll be coming out soon. We'll keep an eye out on the website. Thank you. We're talking a little bit about her legacy, good and bad. And obviously some of those factors are not anything to do with what she would have wanted to put out there. I mean, she was a victim of the circumstances in many ways. How do you think Eleanor would have wanted to be remembered, do you think? I think from the examples of the Pleasants and the court they were building there is I think it would be humanistic, intellectual. It's really hard to say, but a legacy along those lines is I think what she would have. I mean, maybe that wasn't quite ambitious enough for her. Maybe um, she'd like to be remembered as queen. We, we can't really tell with that one. We know she is a big personality. She is ambitious, but has also kind of got this real grounding in learning and intellectualism in so the good things in life. And people clearly liked her as well as really hated her it's obviously really hard to get into the head of someone who lived 600 years ago but I think that kind of humanistic learning is probably what she would have liked her legacy to be yeah and I think a fully rounded picture of this woman connected to witchcraft and treason is one of those things that we're trying to achieve isn't it nowadays it's three-dimensional picture rather than just a two-dimensional one so I think that's what this podcast is all about yeah definitely Cool. What about depictions of her? We've talked about painting. How else has she been depicted through time? Is she in any films? Is she in any TV series? Not really. You get this take on her story with Game of Thrones, but otherwise she, she doesn't really appear as often as you might expect. I mean, it's a fascinating story. You've got treason, you've got magic, you've got spirits being summoned. It's probably part of this fact that the 15th century has almost been overlooked a little bit. And when you talk about the 15th century, you have then more and more charges of witchcraft and treasonous witchcraft against women being brought during the Wars of the Roses. So Elizabeth Woodville and her mother. And I think it becomes almost normalised is the wrong word, but it becomes more common. I think we would potentially think of those later accusations of magical treason rather than the earlier ones, just because they fudge it essentially with Eleanor and there's no real resolution. It's kind of just put on the back burner. Yeah, you're right. And she's right in the middle of all these big stories that have been told again and again. So you've got Agincourt and Henry V and everything that happened there. And after that, you've got Richard III and you've got all these other things that people talk about. And it just gets lost in that timeline, doesn't it? And then you've got the Tudors, the yeah. big Tudors with in capitals. She gets mentioned. I think she must have had an effect in the psyche of these people that followed on from her because it was such a big deal at the time but then it gets lost in the retelling of all these other incidents isn't it yeah or kind of accumulated into this this general idea of elizabeth woodville as a royal witch when actually it's a bit more subtle than that definitely needs to be a film or a series you can see marjorie jordamain there and eleanor that would be fascinating to see depicted on screen i'll have a think about who i think should play them do you have an interesting fact about Eleanor or any anecdote that you could tell us maybe to round off? Yeah, so we, we mentioned it earlier, but I think the story of Juliana Ridligo, the woman who accosts Henry VI riding across Blackheath, is just, it really sums up that polarising effect that Eleanor had on people around her and Humphrey as well, because it's such a, a statement that's being made. And this woman is, it's not a very light fact because she has a horrific death as a consequence of this. She, after accosting the king and saying, you're stupid and the whole of England knows you're stupid, and send Eleanor back to her husband who you kept her away from. After being given that first chance to retract her words, she is arrested and taken to the Tower of London. But she refuses to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty to any charges that are being brought against her. And she is made to suffer what's called pain fort et jure, which is long and powerful pain essentially and what this is you are made to lie 
again in a shift in a kind of whole a groove in the floor and you're only to be fed bits of bread very occasional bits of water and only on opposite days and they essentially put weights on your chest and keep adding the weights until you either enter a plea or you die and for Juliana she opts for the for the latter and she dies from this process and I think it's obviously a horrific way to die and it's a horrific story but I think it does show how committed this woman potentially is to Eleanor that she's willing to undergo this and obviously we mentioned earlier there may be other concerns there as well but it's just a very powerful story I think I think it is and I think that's one of the reasons why I mentioned it as well because it sticks with you when you hear it because this is someone who didn't have to do it she went out of her way to say what she wanted to say to the king yeah that's impressive in itself and then you know like you say we don't know whether she had mental problems or she didn't but it's carried through time hasn't it that story we're still talking about it now because it's moving yeah and we've got the records of that at the National Archives and it just reading through it when I was preparing this exhibition, it's just, it's a very it's kind of small note at the end, which says what has happened to her, but it's a very powerful one. Extremely. I'm glad we're going to end on that. Thank you very much, Ewan, for being here. And I'm going to hot foot it down the road to the National Archives and go and look at that exhibition because it sounds like a really fascinating way to tie in different incidents, looking at that one thread through them all. Yeah. Well, you've got to the 6th of April when we will be closing. So get down before then if you can. Done. I'm on my way. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, come back again and talk about all the other things we mentioned, Definitely. please. <laughs> all right, see you soon. there just a little reminder to say don't forget to check out our other episodes of heroin city we've got one on pamela conwin smith we've got one on bess of hardwick notable northern english women and many many more please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts tell your friends tell your mum tell your sisters tell whoever you think will enjoy these amazing stories of women in history oh and don't forget to go over to our Instagram account, which is heroin underscore city. And we'll see you very soon.